But when it comes to spiritual development, and when it comes to spiritual education, Scripture makes it very clear that while schools can be involved, and they are, and while churches can be involved, and they are, and ministries can be involved, and our student ministry and children's ministry, they are involved, Scripture makes it clear that the primary spiritual development in the life of a young person, uh, Scripture makes it clear that it comes from mom and dad. And we've been studying the life of King David, David who killed Goliath, for those of you who are new to church, all summer long at our church. And today we end the life of David with the beginning of his son Solomon. And we end David's life today by watching him literally pass his spiritual legacy on to his son and say to his son, son, it's your turn now. Um, and we end David's life by watching his son begin his life. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. That's where we're going to be studying today. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. They've got Bibles that you can have. So if you didn't bring your Bible today or you forgot one or you just want one, we're going to read an entire chapter, 21 verses today of Scripture. If you'd like to follow along um, in a hard copy, just wave at the ushers. They'll give you one. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began. So if you don't have one or you don't know where yours is. Just put your name in it and keep it. Uh, But every Sunday, we're going to open God's Word and study God's Word. This is our primary text of trying to find out God's will for our life and for the lives of our family. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 1 through 21, we see the last days of David, beginning the first days of his son, and we see not only what it looks like to pass the torch spiritually, but we, we really learn some tremendous spiritual truth about how exactly to do that. First Chronicles 28, we start in verse 1. It says, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors, and all the brave fighting men. King David rose to his feet and he said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people, I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made a plan to build that house. But God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name because you're a warrior and you shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah, that's the state he was from, as a leader. And from the tribe of Judah, he chose my family. And from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all of Israel. And of all my sons, and the Lord's given me many... He's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I've chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I'll establish his kingdom forever if he's unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. Verse 8, so now I charge you in the sight of all of Israel and in the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind for the Lord searches every heart and he understands every desire and every thought. And if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he's going to reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, storerooms, upper parts, inner rooms, place of atonement. He gave him the plan of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God, for the treasury of the dedicated things. He gave him instructions for the divisions of the priests and Levites and for all the work 
of serving in the temple of the Lord as well as for the articles to be used in his service. And here we see kind of a list of the articles. He designated the weight of the gold for all the gold articles to be used in service, the weight of all the silver for the silver articles to be used in service. 15, the weight of the gold for the lampstands and their lamps, the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of the silver for the silver lampstands and its lamps. Verse 16, the weight of gold for the consecrated bread, weight of silver for the table, weight of gold for the forks, sprinkling bowls, pitchers, the weight of gold for the gold dishes and the silver dishes, the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense, he also gave him the plan for the chariot, that is the cherubim of gold, that spread their wings and overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 19, all this David said, I have in writing, as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of the plan. So David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord my God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. The divisions of the priests and the Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of the God. And every willing person skilled in any craft, they'll help you in all the work. Then the officials and all the people will obey every command. Now, I'm not sure why you came to church today. And I'm not sure what you anticipated getting out of church today, but today is shaping up to be a special day in the life of our church and maybe in your spiritual life because the Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. You say, what does that mean? That means that the presence of God, the spirit of God, descends on people who are praising God. That's why we sing songs at church first. We sing songs because the Bible says when we sing songs, like the spirit of God comes to meet with us. And I believe that that prepares the peace of God in your heart to hear from the word of God what he wants to say to you. More than that, the Bible says that Jesus said we should have the faith of a child. So I think when the worship of God is led by children of God, that the spirit of God enters the place in such a special way that the peace of God that's in you, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has implanted a peace of eternity in every heart so that we might seek after God. I believe the spirit of God who's here today because these children have led us in the worship of God, wants to connect to the peace of God DNA in you to do something special. And I believe that special thing is going to happen first and foremost to those of you who are parents because my prayer all week long has been that mom and dads would hear something today so transformational that they would do something different every day for the rest of their life than they did coming in because they learned a spiritual lesson. But some of you in here, you're not moms and dads. And you don't have a good relationship with your moms and dads. And the topic of parenting is not a good topic for you because it doesn't apply to you. Or when applied, it, it's applied negatively because your mom and dad were not good spiritual parents to you. For those of you who aren't parents, what you're going to learn today is a plan that you could put in place for your kids. Or it's a plan that you could put in place for yourself. Because the biblical truth that we're going to learn today is a biblical truth that if applied to your life will help you grow closer to Jesus, or if applied to your children's life, will help them grow closer to Jesus. But this is a message for everyone, and I believe the Spirit of God is here, and I believe there's a piece of the Spirit of God in you, and my hope today is that they'll connect as we learn how David passed the torch spiritually to his child. And because that's the topic of our Bible study, I want you to reach in that bulletin, tear off those sermon notes, get a pen ready if you have a pen so you can take some notes, and let's learn together how to build spiritual DNA either in our own life if we don't have children or if we do have children on this back to school Sunday specifically in the life of our kids or maybe grandkids if you're a grandparent. Let's learn today how to leave spiritual legacy. We learn from David three powerful things from 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And the first one I believe is the most obvious and absent spiritual statement that can be made in a church. Let me say it again. 
I believe point number one is the most obvious spiritual point in the history of the world, and I believe it's the most absent spiritual point in the current reality of the church, and that's this. As we look at the life of David, we learn that we're supposed to pray for our children. We learn that we're supposed to pray for our children. And we learn in this context of David's life how important it is to pray for our children. And this is an obvious spiritual statement. Anyone who's ever been to church knows that we're supposed to pray for our children. And nearly everyone who goes to church doesn't pray for their children. If I could ask you to be authentic and transparent and sincere today, I would ask you when the last time you got on your knees and prayed specifically for your children is. Because some of you, your kids have gone back to school just in the last 10 days. They've gone back to a year that's going to shape their life in some, in some way, in some form. And I wonder how many of us as parents who it's obvious that we should pray for our children have actually taken time to get on our knees and just pray for our kids. It's the most obvious but absent spiritual truth in parenting in the church today. Yet in 1 Chronicles chapter 29... We see David take a moment to pray for his son. Now, let me give you the context of 1 Chronicles 29. We just read 1 Chronicles 28. David has assembled in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 the most important people in the land of Israel. He's basically giving the state of the union. He's got, he's got the both houses of Congress there. He's got the full Senate there. He's got his joint chiefs of staff there. He's got all his important donors there. He's brought in all of the special forces of the land of Israel there. And he's giving to the most important crowd that's ever been gathered, the most important message that he would ever give, the message of the transition of the kingdom. And in the midst of that, he stopped. In the midst of a very busy day, a very important message, a very important meeting. He stopped and he prayed for his son. Where is it? If we were to continue 1 Chronicles 29 as we roll through the speech of David, we get to verse 19 and in the middle of this day, he stops and says, God, give my son Solomon wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, your statutes, your decrees, and to do everything to build a palatial structure for which I provided. David in 1 Chronicles 28 tells his son Solomon to live for God. And in the midst of his busy life in 1 Chronicles 29, he actually prays that that will happen. We have a lot of parents in the house today who have been telling your kids live for God. But you've not been praying that God would draw your teenager to themselves. You've not been praying that God would draw your elementary school student to your house. We've got a plan without prayer. Now... I want to ask you a question this morning. How often do you stop to pray for your kids? Say, Christian, I'm busy. David was busy. Say, Christian, I got some important things to do. David had an important thing to do. How often do you stop to pray for your kids? Now, I want to give you what I believe is a hidden reality in, into why the room is so quiet. As a pastor, the, the word conviction means you know, God is speaking something to you that's, that's heavy on your heart. You can feel the room get quiet. Why, why is there so much conviction in this moment? You know, when you look at the life of the disciples, they hung out with a man named Jesus every day for more than a year and a half before they t finally tapped him on the shoulder and asked the question that is the answer to our problem today. Our problem is we don't pray for our kids. Why? I think the answer is what happened with the disciples. They went and tapped Jesus on the shoulder and said, Will you teach us how to pray? Because we don't really know how to do that. Now, they've been hanging out with Jesus every day for a year and a half, at least. 
And it appears that Jesus had like said grace at every meal and like at every big moment. And, and if you were to ask people, you know, I heard once that the, the greatest fears of American fear, number one, public speaking, fear number two, dying, which basically means if today were a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than on the stage. That's kind of how the fear process works, that you, you'd rather not speak. If I took a microphone today and just called your name out of the crowd and said, would you come close us in prayer? Some of you would have to change your pants before you went home. We're, we're not a crowd. We believe in prayer. But I think most people don't know how to pray. And if the disciples hung out with Jesus every day and they just didn't learn how to pray, how are we going to learn how to pray if somebody doesn't teach us? So I don't think we have a prayer problem and that we don't think it's important. I think we have a prayer problem and that we all say, man, I, yes, I want to pray for my kids. I don't know how. How does that work? That's uncomfortable for me, Christian. What a pastor's meeting with our lead pastors last Monday for about three hours. And as I developed this message, and I knew I was going to teach it. I told Pastor Ryan, I said, I think as a church, we need to teach our church to pray. So as we start our small group semester next year, we start small groups tonight for the fall semester, but I asked Pastor Ryan in January, I said, I want every small group to learn how to pray. And we're going to do a 40-day church-wide campaign called 40 Days of Prayer. We're going to teach our people how to pray. Because most of you are not the ones that volunteer at staff lunches to pray. And most of you are not on your knees every day talking to God, even though you want to. And the sad thing is most of us don't really pray until it's too late. But for our children, we need to learn to develop seatbelt prayer rather than airbag prayers. You get the difference? Because we know, like, we know how to pray airbag prayers, right? Like when, when the accident happens, we know how to pray. Like we know how to deploy once, once the vehicle has, has been hit. Like, we not only pray, we ask our Facebook friends to pray, we ask our Twitter friends to pray, we, we send out text messages, like, like when, when the crisis hits, we pray. We've got airbag prayer figured out. Crisis prayer, that works. But seatbelt prayer is preventative prayer. Seatbelt says there's the possibility that my children in this world could face some things that could lead to accidents, so I need to pray for them. I need preventative prayer for my kids so that if they were to get in a wreck, not when they get in a wreck, God will protect them. And one of the greatest prayers you can pray over the life of your kids that anyone can pray, I actually timed it last night to see how long it would take. It takes eight seconds to pray this prayer, is a prayer of Jabez. It's found in 1 Chronicles 4.10. We're taught this little prayer by this guy that we don't know anything about, except he said this prayer like every day of his life. And it's a prayer that you hear it, and you're like, man, that's a great prayer. I should pray that prayer. In 1 Chronicles 4.10, it says, Jabez cried out to the Lord God of Israel. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory and let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I'll, I'll be free from pain. That was probably six seconds because I'm talking faster today than I did last night. An eight-second prayer, a five-second prayer, a 10-second prayer prayed every day for your children. What is Jabez saying here? Jabez asked God for four things that I think if we would ask for our life or the life of our children, it would transform our spiritual leadership. One, pray for God to bless your kids. Jabez says, God bless me. That's a great prayer. God bless me. What if we begin to pray every day, God bless my children? What if we took this list of four I'm getting ready to give you and we made about five note cards and we put one in our office and one on our bathroom mirror and one in our car and one on our nightstand and we just thought, Lord, 10 seconds today at some point while I'm brushing my teeth, I'm gonna pray this prayer. God, while I'm sitting in a red light, I'm gonna pray this prayer. God, when I walk into my office, I'm gonna pray this prayer. Put it by your coffee machine while I'm waiting for the Keurig to fill up, I'm gonna pray this prayer. What if a 10 second prayer could change the destiny of your children? Pray for God to bless your kids. Jabez said, God bless me. Number two, pray for God to increase your child's influence and opportunities. 
Jabez said, God bless me and enlarge my territory. He was basically saying, help me do more in life. Help me do more than I was born with. Help me to go out with more than I came in with. Help me to leave a bigger footprint on others than they left on me. Pray for your children to have influence and opportunities. Number three, pray for God to be with your kids. I love this prayer of Jabez. God bless me. God enlarge my territory. God be with me. Man, what a great prayer. God be with my kids today. What does that mean? I don't like, I'm not sure. God, I just, just be with my kids today. And then number four, pray for God to protect your kids from harm. Jabez said, God, keep me from harm. What a simple yet profound prayer for our lives and for our children. God, I pray that you'd bless my kids and that today you'd do something to help them have influence or opportunity and God, that you'd be with them all day long and you'd keep them from harm. Bang, that's done. What would happen in your life if you begin to pray for your children? My prayer challenge to you who are parents or to those of you who are just here listening or for those of you who desire to have influence over anyone spiritually, prayer challenge, number one, pray about your kids. When you're not with your kids, pray for them. When you think about them, pray for them. Prayers don't have to be eyes closed, on your knees, out loud. Prayers can be thoughts offered to the God of the universe who's listening at every moment of every day. God, be with my child today. God, be with them as they get on the bus. God, be with them on the first day of school. God, be with them at practice today. It's really hot. Pray about your kids. Secondly, pray with your kids. Pray with your kids. Do you know there's not a day that my kids get on the bus that I don't pray with them before they leave? You say, like, y'all, like, do y'all get in a huddle and get on your knees and, like, do you, do you like, light a candle? No. I mean, like, it's a, it's a five-second prayer. But my children know not to leave the house until dad has prayed with them. They'll find me if I'm not there waiting at the front door. And the prayer is really fast. Let's pray, Lord, Lord, be with Christian. Help him not get in trouble today. It's a little different for Casey. God, be with Casey. Help him not to talk too much today. Like, I've got specific prayers for specific kids. Help him to have fun. Keep them safe. It's like a five-second prayer. And then I hug them and say, man, go. But I want them to know, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. My kids don't go to sleep until I pray for them. They wait in their beds until Danielle or I go down. We, we don't tuck them in. They're old enough to do that. But they just kind of wait in their bed until we go and lay our hand on them and say, man, have you had a good day? Tomorrow's going to be a great day. God bless them. Give them great rest. Help tomorrow to be awesome. I bet I pray for my kids less than 20 seconds a day, but I pray for my kids, with my kids, every day, twice a day. I believe this will begin to change the DNA. I've got a pastor friend that when he's out of town, he text messages prayers to his kid, praying God will be with you today. And he'll just send a 140 uh, 140 letter text to his kids, praying for you. Pray with your kids. And then number three, pray over your kids. Man, pray over their future. Pray over their dreams. Pray over their future spouse. Pray over their future jobs. Pray over where they're going to go to college. Just pray that God's presence is always on your kids. We got to pray for our children. David shows us that it's the most obvious yet absent thing in the life of Christian parents today. Secondly, we've got to shape a plan a spiritual plan for our children. And the church is here to help you and assist you in that. But the reality is at the end of the day, this is your plan for your kids. You have to shape a spiritual plan for your children. If our prayers serve as seatbelts for our kids, our spiritual plan really serves as like driver's education for them. It teaches them how to navigate life before it happens and what to anticipate and what directions we would like them to take in certain things. And a lot of times we don't put pieces together of, 
of the plan until like we realize um, we're off a little bit. A few years ago, we were in Charlotte, North Carolina. Danielle and I are two kids, and my sister-in-law was with us. And she, she was in a season of life that had just been difficult. And she was trying to sell her house. Uh, and some of you know, many of you were in this situation. She was in a house that kind of went down when the market went down. So she was in an upside-down situation. She put it up on the market to sell, and basically to get it ready to sell, she had to invest like ten, tens of thousands of dollars to get it ready. And like every day, there was a piece of bad news on the house. And we were with her a lot of times through this. And like every day, the realtor's call, or the inspector's call, or this is calling. And every day, the, the, the cost is adding up, and it's like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. So she went to Charlotte just to get away for a couple days with us. We were out visiting churches. And while we're in Charlotte, we're driving down the road and she gets a call from her realtor and we hear her take the call, we got quiet. And then she just starts bursting out in tears. Like just the flood finally overcame. We're like, what happened? And a realtor called and said, I went over tonight to show a house, it's in January. And she said a pipe had bust and it looked like maybe water had been running for two or three days. There's four to six inches of water everywhere. The house is ruined. Just every, like you had to gut everything. And she did, she had to gut everything. And like at this moment, like there was so much tension in the car, like she's crying. She's like, what's going wrong? Why does God hate me? And you know, I'm trying to find a little comic relief because my kids are there. And I'm like, man, if you just like want to roll down the window and just like, just like cuss, just get it out. Like if you just want to get it out, like that's okay. You can do that. And she kind of chuckled. And I thought, oh, I lighten the mood. And my son who was younger, much younger at the time, um, says, dad, can I roll down the window and yell a cuss word? <laughs> So he's little at the time, and like the S word is stupid, and the D word is dumb, and the H word is heck. So I'm like, yeah, that's fine. So he rolls down the window and yells one, and it's a real one. <laughs> he's like, ah, and I was like, oh no. Like, I'm like, Christian, you can't say, don't ask him what word, he's sitting right here and all his friends are like, what'd you say? Don't say it in church. <laughs> yeah, don't say it right now. <laughs> God, Lord, help my son. Um, you so, so I'm saying, I was like, son, what are you doing? He's like, you told me to. And I was like, well, I didn't know you knew that word. That's, you can't say, that's a bad one. I was like, holy stupid. You, you can't say that, you know? And I thought, I got to get a plan together to help my son realize what words he's allowed to say and not allowed to say. And you kind of realize as a parent, you, you kind of plan around, like that was an airbag moment, like window down, it's like bang, he knows a word he shouldn't know, and I'm going to have to help him. But David shapes this plan for his son. Look at, look at chapter 28, I'm going to kind of bounce around a little bit, verses 11 through 13, and get your pen ready, I, I want you to circle a few words with me. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, then David gave his son Solomon the plans, circle the word plans, then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, building storerooms, upper parts, inner parts, and a place for the atonement. Verse 12, he gave him the plans, circle the word plans, there it is again. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts, the temple, surrounding rooms, treasuries, temple, dedicated things. Verse 13, he gave him the instructions, circle the words instructions, for the divisions of the priests, Levites, for all the work, as well as all the articles to be used in the service. Flip, go down to verse 18, if you would, halfway through verse 18 says he gave him the plan, circle the word plan, for the chariot, the cherubim to overshadow the ark. Verse 19, all this David said, I have in writing, underline those two words in writing, as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of 
the, what's the word there? The plan. Circle the word plan. David clearly had a plan. Because five times David said, follow the plan. Follow the plan. Follow the plan. And when you don't know what to do, follow the plan. And when you don't know what to do, follow the plan. And here it is in writing. Now, the reality is your spiritual plan for your children begins with your spiritual plan for yourself. Because I love the generation that we live in now because we're living in a generation that says, I will not do what you say unless you do what you say. Like we live, we live, we live in a generation now where teenagers are going to call you out, mom and dad, for being a hypocrite. I mean, it just is the way it is. And if you tell your teen, go read your Bible, they're going to say, you don't read your Bible. Like it ain't going to happen. We are not in a do what I say, not as I do generation. You're going to have to live for Jesus if you want your kids to live for Jesus. Plain and simple at this point in American life. And David says to Solomon, I've got a plan, I've got a plan, I've got a plan, I've got a plan. But he said, this is my plan that I developed for me. And now I'm going to pass it on to you. Now, your plan for your kids should be clear. Your plan for your kids should be in writing. And your plan for your kids should be repeated often. You say, Christian, that, that sounds crazy. Like, who have, you, like, you do that, but you're a pastor. Listen, first, no, I do not do this, and I do not have this done yet. I was with one of my pastoral coaches, one of my mentors, two weeks ago, and we were having breakfast, and he asked me, he said, Christian, what's your spiritual plan for your kids this year? Like, what's your spiritual plan for the school year? And I was like, I don't know. Um, and he said, you got to have a plan. And one of my assignments was to write my spiritual plan for when I'm going to spend time with my son, when I'm going to spend time with my daughter, and what curriculum or piece of scripture we're going to review, and I'm going to teach them. And he wants that from now until they're 18. He's not doing that to make me a better pastor. He's, make, he's doing that to make me a better dad. It's not a church thing. It's a dad thing. And I want to challenge you, parents. First, get a plan. Then write it down. Then tell your kids over and over and over and over. In 1 Chronicles 28, 19, all this David said, I, I have in writing. I actually wrote it down. In, in 28, 8 through 10, he says, I charge you, Solomon, in the sight of all Israel, in the assembly of the Lord, in the hearing of our God. Be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God that you might possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge a gift, the God of your father, and serve him wholeheartedly. In devotion with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart, he understands every desire of every thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. In 1 Chronicles 28, 20, he repeats, David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid, for the Lord, my God, is with you. In 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3, we see a different narrative. We see David on his deathbed, and some of the last words he spoke to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He said, so be strong and act like a man. Man, what great advice to give to your son. Be strong and act like a man. And observe that the Lord, what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws, his regulations. As written in the law of Moses, do this so you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. You know the one thing I love about what David did? He was so honest. He used the word work twice. It's going to be work. You know, we... we those of us in my generation, kind of the, the 20 to 45, 20 to 50 generation, we were kind of raised in a generation where Christianity was easy. It was just, like, it was, it was what we did. Like, being American meant apple pie and baseball and, and going to church. And I don't know that our generation was told that it would be as hard as it is. So when it got hard, I think a lot of us have quit. A lot of people we know have quit. And David was honest enough to say, if you're going to live for God, it's going to be work, but you need to do it. 
In 2810, he said, it's going to be work, do it. In 2820, he said, it's going to be work, do it. In 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3, he said, it's, it's going to be hard, but do it. And the one thing I love about David, I look at this word work, David embraced the reality that Christianity is difficult sometimes. He embraced the reality that Christianity takes sacrifice all the time, and then he passed that on to his, his children. And if you and I would embrace this truth, that loving Jesus is not easy, and that, and that trying to live your life for Jesus is not easy, and we're never perfect, and we fail all the time, and, and we have to not do other things in order to do some things for Jesus. We have to, we have to sacrifice some things to walk well with Jesus. If we would embrace it and then pass it on to our kids, they'd be much better prepared for the spiritual war that awaits them in life. But we got to get a plan. Mom and dad, get a plan. Talk about a plan. I don't care if it takes till January to make. Just start discussing what your plan is for your kids spiritually. And then number three, we have to surround them with spiritual help. We have to be very intentional but to be very intentional about surrounding our kids with people who can help them spiritually. First Chronicles chapter 28 starts and ends with verses of who David is putting around in his son. In, in verse 1, he basically says, son, here are the strongest people that I know. In verse 21, he says to his son, David, here are the most spiritual people that I know. And then he asks these people, the strongest people that he knows and the most spiritual people that he knows, he says, help my son. And David knew as a dad, he wanted to get his son to a place where strong spiritual people would help him because David needed help raising his child. In 1 Chronicles 28, 1 and 21, it says, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem, officers, commanders, people in charge of property, property and livestock, palace officials, warriors, soldiers, he said, help my son. In verse 21, it says, the divisions of the priests and the Levites, those were all the ministers, are ready for the work of the temple. Every willing person skilled in any craft, they're going to help you if you need help. Now, we know from Scripture that parents are their child's first layer of spiritual help. So the first people that are going to help your child should be you spiritually. You are the first line of defense and listen, whether you, whether you adopted a child, whether you have taken ownership of somebody else's child or the state has given you a foster child, whether you have birthed your own children, if you have children in your house, you're the first line of defense. You, mom and dad, spiritually are the first line of defense. You're their first layer of spiritual help. And here's what you need to understand, mom and dad. Your spiritual commitment is the first step of their spiritual commitment. You say, I want, my, I want my son, I want my daughter to be spiritually committed. Great, get spiritually committed. The first step of their spiritual commitment is your spiritual commitment. But they live in a world now that's different than the world that we live in. How many of you parents are glad there wasn't such thing as Instagram and Twitter when you were teenagers. How many of you are glad that there wasn't a video camera of every party you went to in high school and college? I mean, our kids live in a world now, I mean, that like the biggest laugh on that video was the word twerk. I didn't know it, that, that was illegal when I was a kid, I think. You know, I, you, like, you know, you're only allowed to do that in Nevada, I, I think. Like, like our, kids, our kids live in a world now 
that is harder and is different than our world. And our kids are not just going to grow up and love Jesus because, because we're in America and that's what people do. They live in a world that's more difficult. They live in a world that's more diverse. They live in a world that's more challenged. And we need to help our children. And the reality is, as parents, we have to begin having deeper conversations about things that create spiritual interference in our kids' lives than we are. Because if we're responsible to surround them with people who can help them, we're also responsible to remove people who can hurt them. Did you hear what I just said? If we're responsible to surround them with people who can help them, we're also responsible to remove from them people who can hurt them. Do you hear what I'm saying? There are some of you that your children have some friends who when they were six, they were great friends. But at 16, their friendship isn't healthy anymore. And as a parent, you can't stand by and say, well, I'll just pray. No, you got to step in. Because there might be some friends or some boyfriends or some girlfriends or some connections in the lives of your children that are going to be detrimental spiritually. And it's your job when they like it and say thank you and when they don't like it and say I hate you. It's your job before God to step in and say we can't, we can't do this. It's my job to protect you. I'm going to do that till you leave my house. There are some places that create spiritual interference in our kids' lives. There are some places they used to go that when they were three, it was a great play date, but at 13, is dangerous for their spiritual walk and their spiritual life and their spiritual senses. And mom and dad, you've got to have an awareness to say, you know, you can't go there anymore. They can come here and you can go over there, but you can't go there. It's dangerous. I remember when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, and the Holy Spirit isn't as strong in you as it was in me. You're not going to easily say no like I was. So you're not going to be able to do that. And then there are some activities that are here today that were not in place when I was growing up that are spiritually interfering with the development of our kids' lives. And I want to be honest with you. The one that I've witnessed the most in our congregation in this little corner of Lee Summit is kids' sports. There's an idol in our community that many times takes the place of Jesus, and it's called kids' sports. And let me, let me tell you how this works a little bit. And I'm going to tell you how much I love sports in a minute. My godmother died uh, this week on Monday in a little town in Bainbridge, Ohio, where I was born and raised. The only lady um, and her husband outside of my mom and dad and sisters who were at every moment that has ever happened in my life, every birthday party, um, every game, uh, every event, graduation, uh, drove to Kansas City for my wedding. I mean, it's just, there were they're staples in my life. We called them my adopted grandparents. My dad's parents died when I was very young. My mom's lived too far away. They were the only grandparents in my life. Um, Easter baskets, birthday cars, birthday, I mean, like they were, they were the people. Every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, they were the people. And on Monday, she passed away. And I got a call from my dad on Tuesday, and they said, hey, they, um, they want you to be a pallbearer at the funeral. You're going to come, aren't you? And I live in Kansas City, way further from Ohio than everyone else. And I said, man, dad, I don't know. And he said, no, you, you need to come. This is important. I said, all right. So I went to work quickly canceling a week's worth of life, meetings, phone calls, schedules. I mean, I just, kinda, I just had to cancel everything. And as I'm sending out emails and making phone calls, I went back and counted 20 different, I had to contact 20 different people 
to let them know over the course of three days I couldn't meet, I couldn't talk, I needed to reschedule. Some that I knew, some that I didn't know, some go to our church, some don't go to our church. And 18 out of the 20 um, immediately responded with condolences. I'm so sorry for your loss. Many said, I'll be praying for you. Had bankers and architects I was supposed to meet with last week who I've never met who responded with such tremendous soul care. I'm sorry. Um, I'd love to reschedule. I'll be thinking about you. Only two of the 20 did not respond and say, I'm sorry, or I'm praying for you. And only one of those two seemed to be really perturbed, as if my grandmother's death had really inconvenienced him and is one of my son's baseball coaches. As a matter of fact, the reply I got back, because as an assistant coach, I couldn't go to practice, was, hey, my godmother's died, got to go be a pallbearer, kind of rescheduling my whole week. Like, the only reply I got back was, well, is your son going to be there? And I felt like typing to him the word that Christian yelled out the window that day in, <laughs> in North Carolina. But then I thought, you know, he'll post that on Facebook, and I'm a pastor, and I, I didn't feel bad that I wanted to say that, because he was being that at the time. Um, but it was like, I don't want anyone to know about that. And so then God said, no, you need to confess that. You can't call people that. I thought, okay. Um, but I thought, you know, we live in a world, many of us, where everything revolves around our kids' sports schedule. And guys, it shouldn't be that way. Now, I'm talking to you as a child of sports. So I don't want any of our parents that don't think I'm anti-sport. My life was sports. My dad was my high school football coach. My dad was the record holder for wins when he left my high school. He was the record holder for wins when he quit coaching college football. Um, sports were my life. If you walk in my mom and dad's basement, it's a, I mean, it's a shrine to my older sister who was an all-American cheerleader. All of my old sports stuff. In my basement, I've got helmets. I've got framed jerseys. I mean, God bless me radically. My dad and I are the only father-son in my school's athletic hall of fame. I got a full scholarship to college. I mean, I am a child of sports, and I pursued what many of you are pursuing. Don't hear me say that sports are bad, that kids' sports are bad. They made me who I am. My favorite thing in the world as a dad is to coach my son and to watch him play sports. That's who I am. But I'm realizing for many people that comes first, and that can't come first all the time. And, and hear me out. I'm, I'm not talking to those of you who work in the sports industry. It's going to be different for you. It's your job. I'm not talking for those, to those of you who work in the dance industry or the gymnastics industry. I've been at more gymnastics meets than I, than I care to know. I can probably do the floor routine that my sister did that I watched her do a hundred times. I mean, I'm not saying any of this stuff's bad. But I'm saying for a lot of us, everything revolves around the sports schedule, including funerals. Like when I talk to young parents in our church, one of the big things that, that we promote in our church is date night. We think people who are married should go out on dates. When I talk to people who aren't going on dates, I say, man, how come you never take your wife to a movie? It's like, oh, kids' sports practices. They're basically saying our marriage comes seconds to kids' sports. One of the big things that we think families should do is go on vacation. Three times a year in the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to take three weeks of vacation together as a year. When I talk to people about, hey, are you going to go on vacation this year? Oh, you know, our, our kids' sports schedule is really busy. They're saying that sports is more important than family memories together. And I can't tell you the number of people who don't have their kids actively involved in church not because church is not important, but because sports are more important. And it gets priority number one on the calendar. And I'm, I'm talking to you as somebody who's trying to figure this out. My dad's rule for me, like real strict, real conservative, 
I was not allowed to miss church on Sunday ever. So like, regardless of what team I was playing on, what coach was calling me, I wasn't allowed to miss church ever. That's not how I do it as a parent. And my dad and I have had some conflict about that because he thinks I'm wrong. Now, the first year I was in ministry and my son was playing sports, that's the way we did it. He couldn't play on Sundays. And I felt like, I felt like we let the team down and were poor examples of Christians. So I thought, you know, I don't know that I feel comfortable with that as a pastor. So the next year we let him play on Sundays. And on the days he didn't have games, he didn't want to come to church. And I thought, okay, this, this isn't really working either. So this year, year three, we, we kind of did a, a little of both. But we said, listen, let's, let's, let's prioritize church in our family. So if Christian has 10 Sunday morning games, he can play in four, but he's, he's going to come to church six. I have people ask me, you let, you let your kids miss church for sports sometimes? But I tell people, do you ever let your kids miss sports for church? Like, have you ever reversed it? Have you ever let them miss a game so they could come to church? We've decided that we're not going to let him miss two Sundays in a row. And listen, and that, we don't know if that's right. I mean, Daniel and I, we're trying to figure this out as we go. But we're having the conversation saying Christianity is more important, so how do we do both? Most people are only saying, oh, he's got a game on Sunday, so it doesn't matter. You have to, as a parent, run interference on interference. You have to figure out the things that are shortcutting your kids spiritually and say, we got to figure this out and you got to have the conversation. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it can't be the most important thing. Sports and dance and gymnastics and working. There's got to be a balance where you protect your kids. And it's interesting because I learned a new word two weeks ago. Actually, I'd heard the word. I didn't know what it meant. Um, we had a family in our church who was moving to Texas but they were still living in Kansas City. And Kansas school started two weeks before Texas school, so there was a week that they lived here, that school was in session here, but they weren't going to school because they were going to Texas. And I was talking to the mom, and she said, yeah, I gotta run down to the school and tell them you know, why, you know, that our kids aren't gonna be at school this week. And I said, you're moving, like, who cares? And she's like, no, you don't understand. We, you know, um, do, you, do you not know what truancy is? And I said, no. And she said, in Kansas and Missouri, like, if your kids live in the district and they don't go to school and they don't have an excuse, um, as a parent, you can be found by a judge to be found true, which means you can be fined, you can be put in jail for up to 90 days, or you can have your children taken from you. Like, the judge of the state says that as a parent, it's your responsibility to get your kids to school, and if you don't, you're held accountable for that. So I have to go tell them we're living here, but this is why they're not here. I, I need them to have a good excuse so that I'm not accountable to the judge. And I thought, man, that's, that's interesting. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it's appointed for every man once to die and after the death to face judgment. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of things done in the body. There's this thought that one day you're going to stand before a judge spiritually. And the judge is going to say, tell me why you did what you did. In my fears, we're going to have some parents in our church who are basically in spiritual truancy. The judge is going to say it was your job to get your kids in positions where they could learn about Jesus. And you didn't do this and you have no excuse. And as a parent, it's your job to know that. And as a pastor, it's my job to tell you that. Because I'm telling you, if I'm a parent standing in eternity one day and God looks at me and says that, I'm thinking, how come no one told me that, that I was responsible for that? See, mom and dad, you're responsible. 
You're responsible for the friends. You're responsible for the places. You're responsible for the activities. You're responsible for the plan. You're responsible for the prayer. So you say, Christian, what are we going to do? Let me give you three things, and then we're done. Number one, you need to become spiritually what you hope to produce spiritually. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Your child will rise to the level of the least spiritual parent. So I don't know who that is in your, in your couple. But, but mom, if you've got like a super spiritual husband, but you're not real checked in, your son and daughter are going to become like you. Husband, if your wife really loves Jesus, but you come maybe once every six weeks, they're going to become like you. They're going to grab the easiest spiritual commitment. So you got to become spiritually what you hope to produce spiritually. Number two, you have to be intentional about the spiritual life of your child. You got to get a plan. What's your plan? You, Danielle and I's plan has changed three times in the last year, but, but we're always talking through it, trying to figure out for us what it looks like. And number three, you have to prioritize people and places that will help your child succeed spiritually. You have to prioritize people and places where if my child goes here, they're going to have the greatest chance to succeed spiritually. Listen to me. And there's a lot of teenagers in the house. There are a lot of teenagers that don't want to be at church today or ever. And the easiest thing to do as parents would be to say, listen, they're tired. They don't want to go. Listen, there are a lot of teenagers in this house that don't want to go to school tomorrow, right? There are a lot of teenagers in this house that don't want to eat their vegetables tomorrow. And like as parents, we say, no, you have to do this because I, I know it's good for you. I know you don't like this, but I'm going to put you in a position to succeed. You can do with it what you want to do, but you got to prioritize people and places that will help your child succeed spiritually. Proverbs 22, six says this, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. You as a parent have to train your child to know where the foundation of Jesus is then at some point you let them go. As a former youth pastor, it's when they get their license. Literally, when your child gets their driver's license, you find out how much of Jesus has taken root. And then from then to about 25, you just pray. I'm very serious, you just pray. But if you've shown them where the foundation of Jesus is, normally they'll come back. That's what Proverbs 22, 6 says. If you train them up, when they get old, they'll return to what they know if you'll train them properly. Parents, train your children. Those of you who aren't parents, apply all this to yourself and watch your life begin to grow spiritually. Let's pray together.